You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 72 of our Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living life in ruins. I am your host, Carlton Gover, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Connor Johnnan and David Howe. Tonight, we have the extreme pleasure of hosting the most fan-requested crossover, The Shipwreck Mermaid and the Pirate Historian. Dr. Maddie McAllister, a.k.a. The Shipwreck Mermaid, is a maritime archaeology curator based out of Australia. Dr. Jamie Goodall is a staff historian with the U.S. government. They are also both popular social media personalities, both on Twitter and Instagram. So prepare to be boarded by the pirates of social media. Dr. McAllister, Dr. Goodall, thank you so much for joining us this morning, this evening. What is time? Australia, Pacific Coast, East Coast, we're all over the place today. How are you doing this morning, Dr. Goodall? I, I'm good. <laughs> you got your ruins shirt on today. I do. Yeah, I uh, fell asleep in it last night and forgot I had it on until I <laughs> said something and I was like, oh, fangirling over here, huh? Oh. Well, at least you have one. <laughs> I still don't have one. <laughs> Excellent. How, and how about you, Dr. McAllister? How are you in Australia today? Yeah, doing well. Hey, it's much later for me, but I feel like I'm far more awake than you guys. So yeah, good. Being on the other side of the world works sometimes. <laughs> Actually, what time is it for everybody? Let's just let's just start that off. Oh yeah, cool. It'll be fun. Uh, it's 4 a.m. for me. 5 a.m. for me. 7 a.m. for me. 7 a.m. for me. Yeah, 9 p.m. for me. <laughs> wow. Okay. Quite the spread. Quite the <laughs> yeah. spread. Excellent. And uh, and real quick, Dr. McAllister, could you please go ahead and reintroduce yourself for our audience today? Yes, cool. So I'm um, Dr. Maddie McAllister. I'm a maritime archaeologist. I uh, live and work in Townsville in North Queensland, so right off the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. I specialize in ship construction and investigating shipwreck sites, and most of my work has been in and around Australia. Very cool. Thanks for coming back on. Dr. Goodall, do you mind uh, reintroducing yourself as well? Sure. So I'm Dr. Jamie Goodall. I'm a staff historian at the U.S. Army Center of Military History, and my historical specialty is in piracy in the Atlantic world in the 17th and 18th centuries. I operate primarily based out of D.C., Northern Virginia, and yeah. That's a cool gig. Super cool. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. And so in terms of crossovers, this is an excellent crossover and, and it's trying to overlap some of the topics we're hoping is, is going to be rather interesting this evening, this morning, whatever time it is we're all coming from. So real quick, just kind of to, to start us off, Maddie, how often do you use primary source literature as part of your job? Yeah, I think that's where I overlap a fair bit with Jamie, probably in in a lot of our research. We certainly deal with the archaeology and the facts and, and what you find on the site, but that often can be really out of place if you don't have that historical background that sort of pulls it all together. So I think it would surprise people that we use primary resources, searching through archives and things like that quite often, particularly ship's log, and account books, journals are um, super significant for us as pieces to, to put the story back together of um, where they ended up. So, yeah, more often than people would think, I think. 
I can imagine, right? Because the ocean's a pretty big place. I imagine you just don't go searching all willy-nilly without a clue as to where to where to be looking. Yeah, sometimes, like, they're lucky, hey? Like, there'll be reports from people that have just been out, like, I don't know, fishing off a reef or snorkeling or freediving and find a shipwreck, and that's a really sort of the opposite. You have to then try to figure out which one it is. But if you come with this passion and you maybe have read about a certain ship or a story that hasn't been found, that's when you go the other way and and you search for the clues and the last sort of places they were known to have been. But I'm learning more and more over here on the east coast of Australia and the Great Barrier Reef that sits alongside the Coral Sea that it is just massive. Hey, this ocean over here and the islands and the reef is extreme and often the wrecks that I'm interested in the the location and the recording wasn't as as accurate as we have now of course but it means that you've got a way bigger place to search and to narrow down in the middle of nowhere yeah I feel like well shipwrecks probably don't occur that often if you know where you are very well (laughs) (laughs) and if if not or if so then your captaincy might be under (laughs) question (laughs) Dr. Goodall so I think to kind of like set this up a little bit more I think so we obviously are talking to I would say two different aspects of maritime archaeology we're talking to someone who deals with the physical artifacts anything that comes from them and we have someone who's more focused on the primary literature and kind of telling these I mean you guys are both telling stories but they're they're more based in like a series of literature things so Dr. Goodall to kind of tie these together. How often do you use kind of these archaeological or curation reports as part of your research? I try to use them as often as possible. I did my bachelor's degree in archaeology, and so I've always had a a fascination with archaeological sites and the materials that come from them and the context that you can get from archaeological sites that the primary literature either doesn't have or it sort of supplements each other, which is really nice. I know it's probably not as common in the historical profession to use archaeological reports just because they can be really difficult to decipher if you're not familiar with them. But I know that the Texas A&M's Nautical Archaeology Program, their underwater dig at Port Royal was incredibly important to my doctoral dissertation. My entire chapter on tavern culture used that archaeological evidence as its primary source of evidence. So I love that you had an entire chapter about pubs or bars <laughs> and that's legitimate that's amazing <laughs> excellent where is port royal is that in i imagine that's in the, the caribbean correct yeah it's jamaica okay excellent was there any like cursed aztec gold at the bottom of the bay there <laughs> not that they found okay just checking i saw a movie where they talked about it but <laughs> Well, they were they were undead, so it's not like you'd be able to recover them. They'd still be alive, so that's true. Unless yeah, unless they make the proper sacrifices accordingly. So no. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. Right. That's a Pirates of the Caribbean reference. In, in case anyone's really, I'm just wondering if everyone wasn't clear about that. If you haven't seen that little movie, Curse of the Black Pearl. <laughs> so. Dr. Goodall, kind of kind of continuing this, your focus is on Atlantic pirates, 17th, 18th century. Last time you were on, we went on a whole rabbit hole about pirates in, in Asia. Through your uh, research, I mean, you have your doctorate. We, we all understand. Everyone here 
by everyone, I mean our two guests has has a doctorate. And we understand that <laughs> that process, piracy outside the Atlantic, how, uh, and we talked about this a little bit last time, how prolific is it outside of what we think about the Caribbean? And Dr. McAllister, feel free to jump on in. When we're talking about Polynesia or Australia, the Indian Ocean, do we see much evidence of piracy? And on top of that, is it different than what we'd consider Caribbean piracy? Yeah, so there were a lot of Australian pirates, actually. The thing about Australian pirates is that many of them were escaped convicts. They were fleeing their penal punishments, if you will. And some successfully escaped that punishment and reappeared elsewhere with like tales to tell of their exploits. But typically their freedom didn't last very long. They, they were escaped convicts for a reason because they were caught before. So they're going to get caught again. One of the most famous Australian pirates was a woman named Mary Broad. And she was a convicted highway robber. So that's how she got her start. She was sentenced to servitude at Botany Bay. She, along with her husband and children, escaped in the governor's sailing cutter and traveled for 66 days all the way to the Dutch East Indies. She was eventually caught and sent back to England, actually. And during that process, the lives of her husband and children were lost. So her story garnered enough public attention and sympathy that she was pardoned ultimately in 1793. So she has a very interesting background. That's a crazy story. <laughs> How you end up in the Dutch East Indies is take a take a wrong turn in Albuquerque or something. something like <laughs> so I think this can be a question for both of you. Is geography kind of that important thing and the lack of maybe bigger cities on the coast, maybe in Australia or something like that, kind of a factor for maybe not as infamous of piracy? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Like those sort of stories are super interesting. And as Jamie said, like a lot of our pirates that I guess you wouldn't call them traditional pirates, right? Their life isn't about going out and raiding places and raiding other vessels. Everyone was literally trying to escape Australia and get back to where they came from. (laughs) So, and we were so remote, like we still are remote, but back then in the late 18th, early 19th century, there's not a lot along the coastline apart from those colonies. So like Botany Bay, where Sydney is and that area, and then on the West Coast as well. There were some really early colonies over there where I'm from, which I think we kind of touched on last time talking about American whalers being there really early on. So I think that's part of it. It certainly wasn't ever a prosperous colony early on. And I know that maybe would have had a fair bit to do with it as well. But I did think actually, Jamie, there is an Australian pirate who technically is an Australian pirate, is an African-American pilot called Black Jack Anderson. Have you ever heard of him? I have, yes. (laughs) Cool. Uh, which comes to this like whalers. So he was an American whaler on a whale ship operating down in the southwest coast, so down in this area south of Perth, right around the bottom where there was always whales and always seals. And they had, I think as most whalers would do or even pirates, right, were drinking on the beach and got into a fight and killed someone and then decided to abandon being whalers and live in a place called Recherche Archipelago, which is just gorgeous it's blue waters it's wintry down there um, hence lots of seals and they live for quite some time actually being what I would think is 
pirates like living off the land but then raiding whatever boats they could to survive off as well so that actually is quite a little known story in Australia I'd, I'd say that if you'd ask most Aussies if they knew of a pirate in Australia they'd look at you really blankly because that's kind of like a hidden part of our history as well so Black, Black Jack Anderson is a really cool story doesn't sound I don't think he was a nice guy they like they fought with the local indigenous people the corner people and they they enslaved local indigenous women as well and eventually he got killed by his crewmates so (laughs) probably not great but maybe that's most pirates actually (laughs) huh i've never heard of him he's got he's got a great nickname so (laughs) i feel like that's that's a part of any sort of pirate outfit is having a good nickname i'm just like looking up blackjack anderson real quick blackjack is australia's only known resident pirate there was nothing romantic about this murderous <laughs> thought. <laughs> That's the first sentence. <laughs> is it? That's great. Yeah, this is on, uh, this is interesting. Inspiration Outdoors, so, you know, great source. <laughs> I know a couple of years ago it came up when I was working at the West Australian Museum, a colleague of mine, Ross Anderson, no relation to Blackjack Anderson, <laughs> was studying sealing down there and they actually found this incredible sealer's cave that had rolled seal skins in a wooden crate that we think is really really old like at least early 1800s and there was sort of a bit of media around whether that could have been one of Black Jack Anderson's haunts and anything to do with him but was tricky to to point all the facts together I think with that one. Wow that's that's very cool. Yeah. Does that smell really bad? Yeah, I didn't I didn't get to see it. Hey, really, <laughs> okay. like, they were real amazed at how it looked like someone who'd kind of left it there a couple of weeks ago. Um, the preservation was really, really awesome. Rolled. Um, however, they preserved the seal skins. They were rolled and really well stored there. Hmm. Well, all right. Well, I think it's time to, to seal the deal on this segment of the podcast. Get <laughs> out of here. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. We'll be right back with episode 72 of Life and Woods podcast uh, here after this word from our sponsors. Uh, welcome back to episode 72 of a Life and Ruins podcast. We have the two awesome people that we love that have been on our show who did our uh, maritime archaeology and pirate history, Dr. Goodall and Dr. McAllister. And Dr. McAllister had a question and wanted to pick... Um, <laughs> Pick Jamie's brain about um, someone who was mentioned uh, in the previous episode with Jamie, and that is the the pirate queen, the one who actually like went into retirement and survived the whole thing. (laughs) So, Doctor McAllister, what kind of questions do you have for for Jamie? I remember I did a post now. It probably feels like it's maybe a year and a half ago. I was literally looking for female pirates that would be awesome to share and not like the the typical ones that everyone knows. And I came across, yeah, Ching Shi, and I was astounded at how powerful she got, what where she came from originally and the fleet that she ended up owning. And, yeah, the fact that she didn't even meet a terrible end. She literally retired and had a glorious life. So I don't know, Jamie, if that's something that you know more about or I did listen to your last episode, but it just obviously wasn't enough information for me. So before they <laughs> ask you any other pirate questions, we're going to jump into that one. <laughs> I think one of the most fascinating things about Ching Shi is that she got her start as a Cantonese sex worker and she used that to her advantage when she met Chang Yi 
He was a notorious pirate and he ended up marrying her and they commanded over 300 ships. There was at least 20 to 40,000 pirates that they were in charge of. And in 1807, he dies in Vietnam. And so she takes over, even though his son, her stepson, Chung Pao, should have probably been the one to take over. But she immediately began maneuvering her way into leadership position. And by 1809, she commanded over 800 ships, which is just crazy to me. And some say that she commanded upwards of 2,000 ships by the end of her career. She commanded over 75,000 men and women in her pirate crew, which I also think is just really cool because she had all these rules for how men had to treat women Hmm. and they had to respect women. If a man took a sex worker, he had to treat her with respect. And if he wanted to marry her, he had to make her legitimate. (laughs) Just all these things. It was just insane. And she ultimately seduces and marries her stepson, Chung Pao, as a means of trying to keep control of her power. That's but, a good one. Um, yeah, she, uh, she chose him because of his loyalty to her husband and figured this was a good way to keep power. But ultimately, he sort of overthrows her. And that's how she, she gets captured by the government. And they work out, a, a, I guess, a situation where the pirates agree to stop their reign of terror and she basically retires and she's granted land and a title and yeah so she's she's one of my favorites was the entire ocean just ships <laughs> yeah them? like that's insane there's so many so many people yeah yeah and what kind of ships were kind of like the typical uh, pirate vessel under her admiralty i mean she was she's an admiral right or even what's yeah. bigger than an admiral <laughs> yeah, no. Nope. Admiral sounds right. Yeah. Kind of like the fleet um, commander or whatever. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> fleet commander. So they were sailing what are called junks, and they're sort of these square shaped ships. This is the best way I can describe them, but they're these very large, sort of, there's not a lot going on. They're flat and they're pretty easy to maneuver. So. They were also useful for carrying a lot of stuff, uh, which was why they were pretty popular. But yeah, junks. (laughs) Sounds like a solid name. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) How did they even ship or do anything in China against such a fleet of, of pirates? I mean, is it like, are they just constantly negotiating (laughs) like some sort of trade deals or something like that? Or... Basically, they would pay them, pay the pirates to allow them safe passage. I mean, I guess, like, how broad was their influence? So is it just, are we just talking about, like, the Chinese coast in the 19th century? Or were they pirating well beyond that into either Japan or or India and maybe as south as um, Australia? So Ching Shi and her band of pirates, they typically stayed in the South China Seas, but... There were also what were known as Woku, which were Japanese pirates uh, Mm. who raided the coastlines of China and Korea. And they were typically of Japanese, Korean, and Chinese ethnicities. And so they're going from the Sea of Japan and the East China Sea, and they're sort of taking over that entire realm. There was a pirate named Chui Apu, 
I think that's how you say his name. During the 1840s and 1850s, he was on the colony of Hong Kong, which was recently acquired by the British. And it became a center for piracy in the South China Seas. And it was in Hong Kong where Chinese and Japanese pirates would sell their loot to merchants who would then churn around and sell those stolen goods to their eager European and Chinese customers. So they're getting a lot of fraudulent goods. <laughs> they're also targeting European and American sailors, encouraging them to desert their ships and join the pirate vessels. So they were very uh, problematic to the governments there. And so Chui Apu was a Qing Chinese pirate who commanded a fleet of more than 50 junks. So not quite as impressive as Qing Shi, but still pretty good in comparison to his Atlantic world, you know, uh, compatriots. And he basically ravaged the South China Seas until 1850, when Captain John C. Dalrymple Hay of the Royal Navy received instructions to uh, essentially eradicate him from this earth. And uh, we don't know exactly what happens to him, but he does sort of disappear from the narrative. Sounds like a mission accomplished. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when the Royal Navy comes after you, that's usually like a bad... It's a bad thing, yeah. 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 You're going to have a bad time. (laughs) Yeah. I had a question then, Jamie. This is something that I find really interesting, and maybe for you guys as well, is this the difference between English written histories and what we know. So I find like Ching Shi really fascinating because obviously she's such a huge historical figure, but we don't hear a lot about it or you don't unless you dig a little bit. It's not like Blackbeard or, or someone that is really recognisable to us. And maybe it's the same thing then for you if you're ever researching those historical records. Like for me, I find myself going down the path of investigating um, American or English ships because if I can find the logbooks and the journals, I can read them. Um, And there's a couple of times where I've come across here, there's particularly a couple of Dutch ships and some French ships, and there's no way I could read those archives. I would have to rely on someone else helping me out to read those. So I just, how does that work for you then? I mean, obviously your your research area is, is English spoken anyway, geographically, but is there sort of people that manage to, I don't know, cross that? I'd never be able to teach myself a language or learn it just to learn the archives. So I'd be fascinated <laughs> if people do. Yeah. So I have very beginning proficiencies in reading <laughs> French and Dutch. I still rely very heavily on translation materials to help me out. But um, I did that because there were a number of pirates that I came across that were of Dutch or French ethnicity. Mm. And the records about them are not in English. Like the pirate Le Olenaise, he was just fascinating to me. But there's not a whole lot in the English records. So I had to, you know, rely on the French records. But it's difficult if you're you know, if you're not familiar with those languages, you do get this very Eurocentric, English-centric viewpoint of pirates, which is something that, you know, I'm trying to fight against in my research. Mm. Although the books that I've been working on, since they're based on the American mainland, the majority of pirates tend to be English. So... I'm just having flashbacks to having to try to read menus in Ukraine and having to use Google... (laughs) The Google <laughs> Translate app where it just you can just take a photo of it. It tells you. <laughs> Excellent. And so, you know, this is a, a pretty in, – in this point in time, there's a lot of different cultural influences that are present. 
in the Pacific Ocean, especially in the 19th century, with colonization just, you know, really going ham at the at, at that point in time. And so for you, Dr. McAllister, when you're going after wrecks or researching wrecks, how easy is it to identify some of these shipwrecked vessels based on their point of origin? Meaning, like, is it easy to tell... 19th century wrecks of a point of origin, like mm -hmm. I imagine a junk looks a lot different than a brig. Yeah. Did I say that right? <laughs> you know, later in time, especially when you get to 20th century World War II, is it easy to tell, you know, a Japanese destroyer from and like an American Corvette? Yeah, that's super interesting. So I particularly look at that, like most of what's left, right, is the the big bits of the ship. So you always have the, the anchors and the, the winches and the, the capstans to bring up the anchors. You also often have these key features that are either there or not, and that gives you a date straight away. So particularly for um, my area of interest is 18th to 19th century shipbuilding, and early ships always had more copper in them, so purer copper as fasteners late sort of 18th century were starting to have copper sheathing so you can get date ranges from that and kind of approximately middle of the 19th century most ships appeared to have iron frames and iron frames preserve really well on reef sites so there are different ways you can date a ship and then if there's timber left behind or wood you can take samples and ID them so a lot of our European ships are built with English oak American ships with American oak from forests over there so that's a really um, fascinating aspect that you can have I was thinking about this a little bit in the lead up to this episode because I was like how how do you even tell a pirate ship in the archaeological record I haven't done any research into pirate ships or shipwrecks and I'm not sure that there's a huge difference straight away that would be really obvious you'd look at a site and be like bingo we've got a pirate um, wreck here I'd say that it wouldn't be filled with normal things maybe that would be the start like it wouldn't be carrying a general cargo or something right where you'd find something typical in in a European merchant vessel traveling we have a really sort of notorious trade over here too on the east coast of Australia called blackbirding I don't know if it's a term that's used anywhere else in the world it's was mid to late 1800s Australian uh, ships going over to the South Sea Islands, so uh, Solomons and areas like that, and essentially tempting workers to come over to Australia to work in the sugarcane fields for not a lot of money and generally for locked in for anywhere from two to five years with no guarantee of going home. So essentially indentured labor and one particular that's vessel that's right off Townsville here is called the foam and it wrecked in 1893 and it has an entire cargo of ceramic armbands that have become like concreted into the reef top and they're super strange it's the only ship that has that and after research we found that they were bulk making ceramic armbands to take over to the South Sea Islands to give them to replace all of their shell armbands that had quite a high value to them. So they were purposefully creating this economy to, to pay South Sea Islanders to go over there and then come back. And maybe that's slightly equivalent to some sort of piracy going over to, to bring people back for an unsure amount of time. But that's a really fascinating one. I wouldn't have a clue, Jamie, about anywhere else. Pirate Rex, maybe you know more about that and what they found in them. Maybe just more canon. <laughs> 
I don't know. <laughs> it's really difficult to to differentiate a pirate ship from a general merchant ship, especially because pirates typically, at least in the Atlantic world, are not stealing gold and jewels yeah. and, and that sort of thing. They are stealing your everyday commodities. And so if you came across a ship that had those, you might think that it was a merchant ship. The only thing that might set it apart would be if it had a very unusual mix of goods, goods that a ship wouldn't normally be transporting together, which means that they attacked more than one Mm. ship and brought those goods on board. I know they were able to identify the Witta as a pirate ship just because of the materials that were left behind as far as there was a bell I think that was left behind the anchor. There were things that identified it as the Witta. And we knew from the written record that Black Sam Bellamy had stolen the Witta. And so that was how they were able to pinpoint like this is a pirate ship. But aside from that, I don't know how they've determined that the ships that they're coming across may or may not be Blackbeards, for Mm -hmm. example. I think it's really difficult to say. Tell by the odd number of legs. <laughs> the pirate skeletons preserved. Yeah, yeah that's what I was going to say. I mean, I think that's that would be maybe a line of evidence, but that doesn't preserve well, right? Any of that stuff doesn't really make it very long. Unless it's really buried, yeah. Or evidence of uh, people being uh, held against their will or something like that. I don't know, but maybe the steel mm-hmm. preserves, but like that's got to be super ephemeral mm-hmm. and these kind of large wrecks that you're dealing with. Yeah. On that note, we are going to end this segment, and I have nothing punny to say, so we'll catch you in the third segment. And welcome back to episode 72 of our, our I almost did it, I almost said ARG, but I, I stopped myself, Our Ruined Lives, uh, no, A Life in Ruins podcast, that's what we are, I know the title of my own show. Um, we're still here with uh, Dr. McAllister's and Dr. Uh, Goodall, talking about pirates and shipwrecks, some cool stuff. So when... I mean, this is this is for either of you. I've already kind of discussed that like piracy in this part of the world is is it takes a different shape than it does in the Atlantic. But when does piracy effectively kind of end in the Pacific or Indian Oceans? And also, just out of curiosity, are there pirates in this? Is it the South Ocean? Is that the lame name we gave it? South of Australia? We've always called it the Southern Ocean. Hey, I think the rest of the world was just catching on to that one recently. (laughs) Fair enough. The South Ocean. It's it's accurate. (laughs) Yeah, Southern. Yeah, I mean, that's what, the bottom of Australia? I don't know where else that would wrap around to. I don't even know if it would make the Cape. It would make some of the Capes, I guess. Yeah, I don't know about the end, Jamie. So I would say the end of piracy in that region, probably the 1890s would be a good plot point, if you will, because by the 1850s, 1860s, the European powers have colonized much of that area and they've they've been able to shift their focus from the Atlantic world because piracy sort of ends there in the 1730s. By the 1850s, they have a really good stronghold on the region. You have a few like Chui Apu who made it to 1859, but I would say the the late 1800s is sort of the the downfall of many of those pirates. How does that work then with modern piracy? Do you get questions like that all the time, like African pirates or um, anywhere Mm -hmm. else kind of remote? What's the difference? Yeah, so... 
So piracy never truly goes away. Mm-hmm. We say it ends just because the vast majority of pirates have have gone away and they're no longer a an international threat. But like even in the Atlantic world after the 1730s, you still had pirates operating off of some of the Caribbean islands. In the east, you had pirates operating off of Madagascar for a long time. And then of course, into the 19th and 20th centuries, uh, even into the 21st century, when you have a lot of geopolitical struggle going on, especially in Africa with that scramble for Africa and the colonization that occurs in Africa, um, there's a lot of destabilization, which leads to piracy. So yeah, I, I would say it continues. It just isn't as large a threat as it once was. Just thinking like where pirates is affectionately loved for their time like was Blackbeard feared or hated or did reports did people romanticize them I guess we don't do that so much anymore with modern pirates Australians have a love of romanticizing like bush rangers back in the day that were really just like not very nice people but somehow um, everyone liked them so is that the difference as well I guess they're not really figures that people like yeah, um, because in the 17th and 18th centuries, even the contemporary sort of romanticized pirates, like you had Captain Charles Johnson's 1724 book, A General History of Pirates, which was like a bestseller, got published in multiple languages. Uh, Alexander Esquimellon's diary, uh, the book that he put together, was published in multiple languages. So, uh, I mean, Blackbeard was feared. <laughs> um, he developed quite a reputation for himself, although we don't have any evidence that he ever actually killed anyone. So uh, he managed to develop this reputation anyways. But a lot of pirates like Avery or Kid, they were very romanticized. Mm. Yeah. What's a bush ranger? Oh, have you guys heard of Ned Kelly or anything? Like a, you don't know bush rangers. Crocodile uh, Dundee, does he count? <laughs> <laughs> does he wishes he was a Jack Donahue count? I thought I'd heard of him. No, so Bush Rangers, um, it was maybe like the um early to mid eighteen hundreds um in Australia and they were possibly around the gold rush in Australia, um, which is I think the same everywhere else, like eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties. And they were people that literally were like robbery highwaymen, stole from the rich. Um, essentially they also often had a little aspect of them that was maybe like um, fighting, you know, the the British or fighting the man and a lot of the public sort of felt for a lot of, I guess, their ideals and they were very like they were seen as dashing sort of highwaymen that came out of the bush to, to rob carriages and things like that in Australia. And our most famous one is Ned Kelly, which I'm surprised if you haven't heard of Ned Kelly. I've heard the name. Heard the name. He's the most famous. He had a really long, prolific life. He had the Ned Kelly gang. There was a famous movie. I think Heath Ledger played Ned Kelly and Orlando Bloom was his like right-hand man in the Ned Kelly gang. And he literally was gunned down by police and he walked out at this standoff wearing this armor that they'd made literally like a tin can on his head. That's one of our like Australia's iconic museum pieces is Ned Kelly's helmet, but please Google it. It's yeah. So like literally like not probably not a nice guy, kill people, shot police, rob from things, but Australians love him. Like he's a hero to us. So I'm actually surprised there weren't more pirates in Australia when you think about it like that. Yeah. 
feel like that's like um in America, maybe like the folks who go west or something like that. The yeah. initial like you who they oh yeah, they think they're like, Oh, they're these these bushmen who like live off the land and Yeah. Meanwhile they're committing, you know, active genocide on <laughs> Native American communities and indigenous <laughs> folks. So, yeah, yeah, they, yeah, they're like, oh, or uh, I'm trying to think. I, the, I can't think of any names off the top of my head, but Billy the Kid. Yeah, 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 yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Um, Daniel Boone. Stone yes, he was like a bush ranger in that sense. But bring it back to the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> I've always kind of found it interesting, like especially in um, the 20th century, how a lot of like submarine captains kind of took on pirate monikers or kind of treated their little submarines like little pirate ships, and and which is pretty uh, you know big in both the Atlantic and the Pacific, especially during World War II. For you, Doctor McAllister, how uh, how common is it to find merchant vessels? sunk from torpedoes i guess it's kind of hard to differentiate if they're torpedoes from a plane or torpedoes from a submarine but on on our east coast especially you know it's a pretty common thing to go dive german u-boat wrecks or merchant ships that were sunk by u-boats in the war yeah so i guess maybe um down here we certainly had that tail end of the war bobbings in darwin and and broom by the japanese so a lot of our battles i think like the battle of the coral sea was um against the japanese down here and i would say a lot of our wrecks that were sunk by subs in world war ii are in really deep water coral sea is real deep even there are a couple that were sunk around like bass strait down there and that's you're looking at 700 meters plus for a lot of those um the worst one possibly was the ahs centaur sunk in i think it was 1943 it was an australian hospital ship so literally carrying hundreds of people and nurses back and the Japanese sunk it and they lost most of the people um, on board. They only found Centaur in about 2008, I think, really deep, like uh, found with submarines to locate that one. And that was a real, I think at the time, even though it was wartime, it was a real huge controversy because um, Centaur was clearly emblazoned as a hospital ship, white with red crosses on it. Um, and it was seen as like poor form from the Japanese to, um, to, to target and sink a hospital ship with people on board there. So that one um, and that wreck, you know, we've found that one. I don't think we'll ever really do a lot of research or anything on it because it just has that huge personal loss associated with it and it's um, a mass grave at real depths. Um, has a lot of really personal effects that are still lying around on the seafloor too. So um, it's quite a significant site there, yeah. I don't know how, yeah, I guess we don't really have a lot of or never had a lot of submarine attacks down here apart from that yeah damn <laughs> I really think about that kind of stuff man I guess yeah. we only had that in the Pacific for us but yeah yeah it's your whole thing over there mm, I'm embarrassed I didn't know there was actual Australia was involved in World War Two, and there was attacks <laughs> on there so you didn't see the Hugh Jackman movie <laughs> No, it's a uh, very accurate. It was, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what movie is this? Definitely accurate. It's called Australia. Actually. <laughs> we all look like them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Margot Robbie and, and Hugh Jackman. That's all Australians. 
Yeah. Chris Hemsworth. Yeah. Oh, Chris Hemsworth. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, we're kind of winding down um, on this episode a little bit, and I wanted to ask uh, both you if you guys have any recommendations for folks who want to get into nautical archaeology, maritime history, or anything like that. If uh, Dr. Goodall, if you don't mind going first. Sure. So my number one piece of recommendation when thinking about entering graduate school period, no matter what the field, is to make sure they pay for it. Um, <laughs> don't you dare pay for it. It's not worth it. <laughs> so make sure that the university that you're going to is going to be footing the bill. But as far as finding a program, you really want to research what the different programs are involved in, like what projects they take on, what their faculty are doing. And you want to get a sense of what the community is like there, because graduate school can be a very lonely place if you don't have a good cohort. And the, the community atmosphere can give you a really good sense of what that cohort is going to be like. So those are like my, I guess, big pieces of advice. And, you know, make sure you have people read over your CV or your resume, your cover letters, those sorts of things. Um, don't be like me and accidentally send a cover letter with another university's name in it. Uh, <laughs> that happens. So, you know, just be really cautious with your materials. I think we've all done that once or twice. <laughs> Dr. McAllister, any any advice for for folks? Yeah, I guess it's not all glory and exciting, hey? And I think that that's the same for Jamie. Like, it's not always these reading great histories of people and and being able to talk about it like this. Um, It's not always diving and working on shipwrecks. Um, For me, that's a real small percent of the job. So I have a lot of people that are really keen divers, really outdoor adventure people that want to get into what I do. And then they're gobsmacked that it's a lot of writing and sitting at a desk and a lot of looking in archives and reading books and history. So just be aware of that first if you're looking at maritime archaeology as a career. And I guess then a few recommendations for programs that I know that teach maritime archaeology really well. Um, Jamie already said one, which is Texas A&M in the States, is a really sort of well-known university that's been around for a long time. East Carolina University has a great program. My old professors are back there and they're doing really great things in Saipan, World War II sort of maritime history, but they have a great broad maritime history and heritage program. So it kind of covers both of what Jamie and I do, I think. I recommend that. Um, Southampton in the UK. And then obviously I went to Flinders University here in Australia. And that's definitely not the be all and end all. They're just um, the four that I know I have a lot of colleagues and friends from as well. So wherever you are, there's bound to be somewhere that'll, <laughs> that you can do maritime archaeology at. <laughs> Is it um, a particularly saturated field? Yeah, I would say so. You've got to love it. You've got to go beyond to get the jobs. You've got to volunteer. You've got to network. You know, I went to conferences in my undergrad and started presenting early. You've, you've got to really sort of um, work hard to make yourself known, I think, because of that. There's not a lot of jobs in what we do. I think my, probably the same for you too, Jamie. Hey, like it's yeah. there's not a lot of jobs for what we've got. And if they're there, people stay in them for like 
40, 50 years. <laughs> Die out the keyboard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> All right. Good stuff. Well, it was a pleasure having you guys back on. Like this was a lot of fun. Definitely worth the 5 a.m. start time for me. <laughs> Can I throw a, a little derailment here real quick? Absolutely, yeah. David. So our professor wrote a book called The Fifth Beginning. And it's like, what was it? Six million years of human history. Can tell us about the future. And like the first beginning is like human technology. So stone tools. Seconds, human culture emergence, like in the Paleolithic. And then the state or agriculture, and then the state is the fourth and the fifth beginning, which is what we currently live in is like, if an alien were to like study the earth, the biggest like jump in history at that, that milestone would be like the scattered shipwrecks around the planet all at the same time that occur at like 1500. Cause it's just all of a sudden the shipwrecks stop becoming just Mediterranean and on the coast, they become like worldwide. So it's like this cool, like huge moment of like, whoa. So I thought that was pretty cool. That is cool. I don't know if you guys have read that book or not, but it's interesting because mm-hmm. it's specifically until we start colonizing space, currently shipwrecks are like the big information exchange age right now that we live in. Hmm. It's meant to be read cover to cover on an airplane. And it's, we have a book deal with them because it's mentioned at least once an episode. So Bob Kelly owes us royalties <laughs> <laughs> for all of our free advertisement yeah, for that book. <laughs> Excellent. So... Thank you, David. Before we end the show, Dr. Goodall's Dr. McAllister, what are a couple sources, books, articles, videos, any other kind of media that you'd recommend for anyone interested in either piracy or maritime archaeology? Uh, we'll start with you, Dr. Goodall. So I'm going to reboost Rebecca Simon's Why We Love Pirates, The Hunt for Captain Kidd and How He Changed Piracy Forever, just because I think it's a fantastic starter book for anybody who's interested in pirate history. Um, But also check out Connie Kelleher's The Alliance of Pirates, Ireland and Atlantic Piracy in the early 17th century, because she really delves into a lesser known aspect of piracy, which is the role that Ireland played in Atlantic world piracy. So very, very fascinating. And please, even though they had great historians on it, avoid the lost pirate kingdom. It was not good. (laughs) Avoid, oh sweet. And I bet those Irish pirates were all about plunder and potatoes. Okay, so avoid <laughs> Lost Pirate Kingdom. It's a documentary on Netflix. And they at one point, they suggested that Anne, Bonnie, and Blackbeard hooked up. There's uh-huh. no evidence for this whatsoever. I don't know why you would put those two together anyways. But there, there's a lot of problems with their artistic licensing. They were using the swashbuckle swipe. <laughs> Swashbuckler swipe. Man, I'm proud of that one. That's good. That's good. And uh, what about you, Dr. McAllister? What sort of things should our, our viewers look for when look, looking about learning about maritime archaeology? Yeah, I have my favorite book. Uh, look, it is very Australian centered. It's called Unfinished Voyages, but it sort of tracks the top maybe 50 shipwrecks in Australia, whether they've been found and excavated and it goes into great detail about that or they're not and it's just the tale of that event and where it ended up. So that's a great one. I did also do a little bit of research for this one and there are a couple of books which I must admit I haven't read but particularly looking at piracy and archaeology, X Marks the Spot and Pieces of Eight, both by the same authors, 
I'm probably going to be reading those after this episode because um, that's really cool. So <laughs> if you're interested. Yeah, Xbox the Spot is good. Yeah, they're cool. All right. It's on yeah. my list. So. <laughs> um, well, excellent. Where can our listeners find you guys on social media? So I'm on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, my handle is the same for both. It's La Historienne. So it's L underscore H-I-S-T-O-R-I-E-N-N-E. And I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as uh, Shipwreck Mermaid on Instagram and Twitter and The Shipwreck Mermaid on Facebook. Awesome. Good stuff. Well, everyone, we just interviewed Dr. Jamie Goodall and Dr. Maddie McAllister. You can find Dr. Goodall on uh, Instagram and Twitter at La Historienne. Uh, you can find that down below in the episode description. And Dr. Maddie McAllister as uh, Shipwrecked Mermaid. Not Shipwrecked, as we were reminded shipwreck yeah. mermaid on twitter and instagram <laughs> and the shipwreck mermaid on facebook thank you both so much for uh joining us today we really appreciate it and if you guys could be or not not you two you don't have to but the audience listening if you could be sure to rate and review the podcast that'd be awesome we actually had content this time like this was a legitimately good episode so <laughs> please be sure to rate and review and let us know what you thought about it thank you yeah and go back and listen to episode 40 uh with dr McAllister, and then also episode 58 with dr goodall if you haven't uh, heard them before excellent <laughs> solo interviews uh right there so with that yeah we are out Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. What lies at the bottom of the ocean and twitches? <laughs> a nervous wreck. <laughs> 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 the other one's even worse it's uh why do seagulls fly over the sea because if they were over the bay they'd be bagels exactly yep. <laughs> thank you This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster and Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.